The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The law was added till the seed was come to whom the promise was made. Now what does this mean, till? Johnny, you may stay up till nine o'clock. At nine o'clock, Johnny stops staying up. I will lend you $50 till the first of next month. Till means that one set of circumstances ends and another set of circumstances begins. Now our text says the law was added till Christ came. This means that the law was done away, subtracted, when Christ came. a half a century ago, the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Not Servants, But Sons. Why did God give us His law? Some might say to perfect us. But wouldn't that be like saying that speed limit laws were created to make all drivers perfect? So why did God give us certain laws? And are those laws still binding today? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, through Galatians 4, verse 7. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Not Servants, But Sons. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness. We rejoice that thou hast made us thy children through faith in Christ. And in this hour, we pray thee that thou shalt use the scripture to open our minds and to give us a fresh vision of what we may be in Jesus Christ. Meet the needs of each listener in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in the book of Galatians, and we come now to chapter 3 and verse 18. The text reads, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, if you get from God because you do something, it is not by grace, it is by works. You earned it, and God himself may not withhold it from you. But if it is by grace, God gives it to you because of the love that is in his heart, not because of what is in your life. Everything we have is given to us by God because he loves us. God gave it to Abraham by promise. He gives it to you and to me by promise. But you may ask, as verse 19 does, wherefore then serveth the law? And the answer is in the same verse. It was added because of transgressions. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you a simple illustration. 
At the time of my graduation from high school, when I was 16 or 17 years old, at that time there was not even one mile of paved road in my home state of California. There was nothing but dirt roads for horses and buggies to travel on. And then horseless carriages began to come down the road, honk, 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 driven by people in goggles and dusters. And as they whirled through the town, horses reared and chickens flew out of the way and clouds of dust were raised. People shook their fists after them and said, there ought to be a law. And soon there was a law. Why? Well, because of the transgression. So those crazy speeds of 25 and 30 miles an hour would be illegal. And so police could arrest the violators. Now today, any man is a fool to drive through traffic at 60 miles an hour. But 50 years ago, if there'd been a car that could go that fast, the fool could not have been arrested. Then a law was added, and today the fool can be arrested. Now that's exactly what God is teaching here in verse 19. Before the Ten Commandments, before Mount Sinai, men were cheating, lying, committing adultery, murdering, but there was no law. They were sinners but their sins were not transgressions. After the law was given, men were punished for their sins, which had now become transgressions. Following this, there is given to us a very important word. In the next clause of verse 19, the law was added till the seed was come to whom the promise was made. Now, what does this mean, till? Johnny, you may stay up till nine o'clock. At nine o'clock, Johnny stops staying up unless he's a spoiled child. I will lend you $50 till the first of next month. Well, when the first of the month comes, you pay it back if you're honest. Till means that one set of circumstances ends and another set of circumstances begins. Now our text says the law was added till Christ came. This means that the law was done away, subtracted when Christ came. Oh, says someone, this is dangerous to say that the law was done away. Well, it is dangerous unless Christ is living in the heart. Do not think that God took away the law and left us with no restraining power. There is a far more efficient check on the Christian under grace than there ever was on the Jew under law. The law said, don't do this, don't do that. If you transgress, you will be stoned. The Lord Jesus in grace says to each of us, do you really love me? If you do, keep my commandments. Love for him is the restraining power. I was preaching on this truth in a city in Tennessee. After the meeting, a group of women came up to me and one of them said, we believe this teaching is rather frightening because if you do away with the law, there's nothing to keep us faithful to God. I said to her, may I ask you a question? Are you married? Yes, she answered, I am. And I said, well, there's a law in this state which forbids adultery. I take it that you're faithful to your husband. Well, of course I am, she said. Well, I asked, suppose they should rescind the law. Would you still be faithful to your husband? Well, of course I would. Well, I said, are you faithful to your husband because of the state law or because you love him? She answered, well, naturally, because I love him. So the state law has nothing to do with your committing or not committing adultery, does it? No, it doesn't, she answered. Well, I said, just so. The law of Moses does not make me faithful to God, but love for Christ does. When the law was done away, Christ came into my heart in order to live his life through me. Now, what I do is not because of the law, but because I love him. His heart beats in mine. His life pulses through my being. 
in order that I may be holy because he living in me is holy. Is there any danger in that? Now let us read the rest of verse 19 and verse 20. And the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. The law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, Moses. A mediator is a go-between. Moses spoke for God to the people of Israel. This has nothing to do with salvation. It refers to the giving of the law. Concerning salvation, we read in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But the promise of grace needed no mediator, for it was not a promise of God to men, but a promise of God to God, a promise within the Godhead, that within the Trinity. And this makes it infinitely greater than the law. Now we come to the 21st verse. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. All that the law could do was to show men that they were not perfect. It was like a measuring stick ten feet tall. God says, I shall take you to heaven if you stand as tall as that measuring stick. But Lord, you say, I, I can't even reach the top with my hand. That's true, says God, you can't. Which one of you, said Christ, which one of you by taking thought can add a cubit, 18 inches, to his stature? The scribes and the Pharisees spent all their time trying to use God's measuring stick, the law, as a lever to raise them high enough to climb into heaven. But the Lord Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The law could not give life. It could only show us that we lacked life. It could only teach us to say, Lord, I have fallen short of thy glory. I must be saved by thy grace. And so when the measuring day comes and God says, what right have you to enter my heaven? I shall reply, measure Jesus Christ and do not measure me. And thus I enter heaven, not on my own measurements, but on the measurements of Jesus Christ. Now this and nothing else is Christianity. I, the sinner, and Jesus Christ weighed and measured in my place, and God looking at me henceforth through him. Now verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, so that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Here we see that the law makes the whole world a prison, and every member of the human race is a prisoner. No one is accepted. If anyone could climb out of that prison by his own efforts, there would be no more salvation. But the law is an efficient jailer. No one has ever escaped, and no one ever will. Only for this reason was the promise given to those who believe. So the law, the jailer, is really our friend. We are shut up unto faith. We are shut up to wait for the only thing that can release us from the prison of condemnation so that it makes it possible for us to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Before faith, prison. After faith, Christ and heaven, liberty. Now verse 24 and 25, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith came, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
This is the third answer to the question back in verse 19, what's the purpose of the law? Wherefore then serveth the law? We saw first that the law was added to give the punishable character of transgression. Secondly, that it was added as a jailer for the whole guilty human race. And now we learn that it was a schoolmaster. The King James translation here gives a completely false idea. A schoolmaster today is a school teacher, but in the time of Paul, what the Greek calls a pedagogos was someone completely different. He has no counterpart in our civilization today. In Paul's day, 50% of all the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, Greeks, Germans, French, English, or Africans. And so a boy in a wealthy family was given a slave who was responsible for him from his infancy. This child slave, the pedagogos, supervised the boy's play, his walks and games, and took him to school. But the pedagogos did not teach him. When the boy came of age, the pedagogos' duties were over. No, the schoolmaster is not the teacher. He is the bond slave to keep the child from being kidnapped. So the law was our slave, supervising us while we were in a childish state, but always with the purpose of bringing us to Christ. And as soon as faith came, then the child slave withdrew. We are no longer children in a nursery or schoolboys at our tasks. We now are children of God, sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. No one felt more keenly than Paul the bitterness of the prison where the law kept him bound with its impossible demands and its inevitable condemnation. O oh, wretched man that I am, he cried, who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free, keeps on making me free from the law of sin and death. And then hear Paul's joyful conclusion in the next verse, verse 26. For you are all the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we must be very careful with this verse because people have used half of it to teach the devilish heresy that all men are the children of God. If someone should ask, what is the most dangerous teaching in the world today? I would answer without hesitation that it's the doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. The Pharisees said to Jesus, we have one father, even God. But Jesus replied, if God were your father, you would believe me. You are of your father, the devil. This we read in John 8, 44. So you see, according to Jesus Christ, there are two families and two fatherhoods, the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood of the devil. You pass from one family to the other when you're born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, this is not a verse that applies to water baptism. The word baptized here has the older meaning of identity, of being one with Christ in the identification. Those who have been identified, made one with Christ, have put on Christ. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. And thus, believers have put on Christ. That's why we sing the great hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, 
my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. And now comes the glorious conclusion which closes the mouths of the Judaizers who seek to put a difference between themselves and the Gentiles. Here is the perfect rebuke to Peter's act of separation. For in verse 28 we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, communism is the devil's attempt to make this verse apply to his subjects without Christ. For the word in the Bible which is translated communion is first cousin to the word communism. Both communion and communism are from the Latin word which means oneness. But in communism, as George Orwell put it, all are equal, but some are more equal than others. A terrible sentence, pregnant with meaning. But in Christ Jesus, there is true oneness. There is no caste, no segregation, no separatism between believers. When we fail to live in the oneness that is ours through faith in Christ Jesus, we open the door for all our troubles. And now in verse 29, And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. This takes us back to verse 18. God gave the inheritance to Abraham in a joint contract with Christ, and he gave it by promise. And now we come into our inheritance in Christ to whom the promise was made. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. In his commentary on Galatians, George G. Findlay writes, From verse 18, Paul has been conducting us onward through the legal centuries which parted Abraham from Christ. He has shown how the law of Moses interposed between promise and fulfillment, schooling the Jewish race and mankind in them for its accomplishment. And now the long discipline is over. The hour of release has struck. Faith resumes her ancient sway in a larger realm. In Christ, a new universal humanity comes into existence formed of men who by faith are grafted into him, partakers of Christ. Gentiles are also of the seed of Abraham. All things are theirs, for they are Christ's. The sons of God are heirs of the universe. Now we come to the beginning of chapter 4, which is really a continuation of the thought that we've just concluded. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, this illustration is so common that it needs no elaboration. If a king dies, his child may be heir to the throne, even though not yet crowned. He is still put to bed at an early hour and is told what he may do and what he may not do. Then, when he is of age, he's crowned. All those who have been his regents and tutors bow before him and accept his lordship. And thus, those who are under a law relationship to God were in bondage. But when Christ came, we were manifested as heirs and came into our coronation. This was the purpose of the incarnation, that I might inherit all the things that God had for me in Christ. Now verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
All this had been planned by God, agreed upon in eternity when the eternal Son consented to be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It had been announced in a score of places in the Old Testament. And then when God's chosen time had fully come, the incarnation took place. Jesus was born. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ came as God sent forth. Christ came as man made of a woman. Christ was made under the law. He would fulfill for the first time every demand of the law. Now it must be realized that Christ's keeping of the law has nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation. Christ's goodness was not presented to God as a sacrifice for our sins. Christ's obedience merely made him eligible to die. God's lamb had to be without spot and blemish. All that Jesus was or all that he suffered before he was nailed to the cross had no part in our redemption. In those six hours only, from the third to the ninth hour, while he hung on the cross and poured out his life, in those hours he became our Redeemer. Those who had been locked up under the law or led around it as a slave or held in check by the law as a tutor are now revealed to be what God planned for them to be. By this redemption, we receive the adoption of sons. Now, in our modern generation, an adoption means accepting an alien child into the family as though he had been born in that family. In the ancient world, however, the ceremony of adoption was for a son what a debut is, a coming out party is for a girl entering society. A father had to adopt his own son in a public ceremony. Some fathers who had spendthrift sons did not adopt them until they were mature men. Until a son had been adopted, his father was not responsible for any of the son's debts. But when the father took his son to the public offices and presented him as a citizen with the highest sponsors available, the son was so proclaimed and became one with his father. This is what God has done for us in Christ. We are proclaimed to the universe as the sons of God. We now have position and place, authority, authority over the angels, and ultimately we will be enthroned with Christ to rule over the universe. Now we read verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Pater, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In the Old Testament, you will never find that any man was really intimate with God. We cannot imagine Moses speaking to God as dear heavenly father. Such a relationship was not possible while men were yet under the law. Christ brought to us the intimacy of the father-child relationship. It was not that he discovered this relationship. He provided it by removing law and establishing grace in its place. And thus it is that the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts to dwell. And thus it is that we cry, Abba, Father. It's unfortunate that the intimacy of these titles is obscured by the transliteration of the word Abba. When I first went to live in the Near East many years ago, 
I saw children leave a group of children and run towards a woman, and one would say, Mama, and I knew my first word of modern Greek. And then I saw a child run towards a man and say, Abba, and I knew my second word, Abba. It was the same as Papa or Daddy. Now the Greek word for father is well known to us, pater. Abba was an intimate word like Daddy or Papa. Oh, do you know the great God of the universe well enough to come to him intimately? Has all fear of him been removed so that you know that he loves you and that you love him and that you belong to each other? Oh, blessed intimacy. If you are trusting in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, do not behave as though he were a far distant power whose only attributes are majesty and authority. Come to him in intimacy as you would to a very loving father, and he will receive you as a beloved child. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless the word to each listening heart through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you know the great God of the universe not only as Holy Father, but also as Daddy, Abba? If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, Not Servants But Sons. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Not Servants, But Sons, or simply request message number Q110. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who is going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. Also, when you call or write, be sure and request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's books and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 800 488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.